Hey everyone, my name is Josh Chambers, and this is How Humans Change. Now if you're new to the show, every episode we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change and we get the backstory. Occasionally we speak with someone who is an expert on change, and with the midterm elections right around the corner, I thought we should start the season off by talking politics. Now if you're tempted to turn things off right now because you've been saturated with politics and you can't handle it anymore, I think this conversation will be refreshing for you. I hope so anyways. In this episode, I spoke with Steve Almond. Steve is the author of, I think, 10 books, including two New York Times bestsellers, Candy Freak and Against Football. His short stories have been anthologized all over the place. He has a New York Times podcast called Dear Sugars. And his most recent book is called Bad Stories. And as he describes it, it's a literary investigation into what the hell just happened to our country. We spent the bulk of our conversation discussing bad stories, and the premise of the book is that the bad outcomes that we have in front of us now are the result of bad stories that we have inadvertently or intentionally bought into. It's provocative, it's insightful, I think it reaches across both sides of the aisle, and it's very self-critical and self-aware as well. Steve has been part of the Fourth Estate for a number of years and doesn't pull any punches in discussing how the media has influenced the landscape that we're living within. Uh, And I'm fascinated by the idea that we are animated on a daily basis by stories that oftentimes we don't even know we believe. One of the more provocative thoughts for me and convicting in Steve's book was the idea that it's not okay to just try and tell better stories, but we also have to counteract bad stories. In Steve's words, bad stories don't just distort our belief system. They act to prevent more truthful stories from being heard. I'm so excited for all of season two. We have things coming up like a woman who decided to stop yelling at her kids, a woman who decided to downsize to a tiny home only to sadly realize that there is a lot of racism involved, Uh, a guy who was in the military and then became an artist, and all sorts of other really beautiful stories of change. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so, and please rate us, give us five stars wherever you download your podcasts. And please tell your friends, as usual. If you know anybody who you think would be a good fit for the show, please go to howhumanschange.com and click contact. All right, enjoy season two and enjoy this conversation with Steve Almond. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, it, huh? it works. It works? It works. Let's have this conversation before anything more <laughs> screwed up, man. Isn't yeah. that amazing? It's, it happens every time. Yeah. It really does. Well, and, and on the other hand, I don't know where you live, but we, I can see you in vivid detail. All of my That's wrinkles true. are you know, apparent to you. I can hear your voice. <laughs> I, I get some sense of the wall art there. I mean, it's quite remarkable. We're, we're talking into these little miraculous white orbs that somehow will give high fidelity to our conversation. It is all pretty amazing. Yeah. Where, where, speaking of, I'm in Minneapolis. Where are you? Oh, Minneapolis. Yes. You know, I'm going to be out there in a few weeks. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm going to be doing the Twin City Book Festival. <gasps> I got to come see you. Yeah, that's going to be fun. That's going to be like a, you know, discussion of, of bad stories. So I'm in outside Boston. Okay. I'm in Boston so, all the time right now. I have clients in Boston. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, then, you know, it is a, a miserable swamp at the moment. <laughs> yes. and, and soon it will be a shitty cold place. So 
that's my life full full of um angry driving and and bad traffic and and cow paths yes well um you know i came across your your book and you uh recently and it was it was through a, a somewhat random place i heard you on pantsuit politics mm-hmm. and i think what stuck out to me was how uh, articulate but kind and still courageous you were in the conversation and it struck me as a very different tone than most of what we're hearing so i looked you up yeah. i found the book i really valued the way you were challenging um some one of the uh hosts on pantsuit politics um which was <sighs> that was a tough yeah that was a tough conversation was it i was curious uh, about that yeah i mean here here's the thing um I, I think there is a, a good faith effort uh, for people who are quote unquote conservative, that is their family of origin, maybe their, their religious belief, their faith practices, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe even a certain kind of cast of character that just says, I, I, I want things to change, but in a way that doesn't feel out of control. Um, and, uh, I want government to be small. That was, you know, yes, I think her name was Beth. She kept saying, you know, well, small government, small government, small government. And I was like, you know, I, I used to believe that there was a reasonable position that sort of said, you know, well, government shouldn't get too big. It will be tyrannical. Da, da, da. And that extends to not interfering with people's reproductive health choices, for instance. And it also maybe includes, um, uh, you know, allowing market the, the the market to decide certain things rather than excessive regulation, so forth. I now, I, I, in other words, I used to think there was a sort of reasonable position where I didn't agree with people who identified themselves as conservative, but I understood them to be good faith actors and yeah. understood them to be not abjectly hypocritical and having to contort themselves into all kinds of ridiculous logic in order to justify supporting what the central message of the GOP is. I no longer really can go along with that. And, and I can't go along with it because they're ripping families apart at the border and they're, it, it's, it's become a kleptocracy and dot, dot, dot. The, the logical end point of what the party enabled has sort of taken over. They wanted to just get a bunch of, they wanted to disaggregate right. wealth. And in order to do that, they had to gin up racial resentment and so forth. So that conversation was one where I felt like, you know, you guys want to have a happy talk about like everybody can just agree to disagree but at a certain point morally the the rubber meets the road here and if you're gonna be say you know you're gonna you want to fix the republican party then you better understand that the central policy making arm the donor class everybody else is not interested in your in, in in your version of what the republican party is in fact if you're really espousing these values you're probably closer you're certainly an independent and you're probably like a literally the kind of person who was a Democrat under Reagan or Nixon, or you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that the right, everything has shifted so far to the right. Right. But what was tough is that I was brought on presumably to talk about my book. So I kept trying to say, I want to tell you what's in the book because I think it applies to everybody across the board. And I got a lot of angry notes from people who were just furious huh. that I had 
talked so much and 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 been so disrespectful to Beth, and she if only Whoa. you knew her like I knew her, and yeah, it was pretty fascinating. That's like a lot crazy because people... that's not supposed to be what that podcast is in its ethos. It's supposed to be yeah. And I thought it was a quite a respectful conversation. I'm surprised. By I that. I thought so too. But I also understood that, and this is partly gender dynamics as well, and so maybe us with our dude ears aren't hearing it the same way. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, what I'm always trying to do, especially because like in my other work, Dear Sugars, that's a space that's almost entirely female. Yeah. And, you know, it's not entirely, but it's, its attitude is one of respectful, supportive, um, conversation, mm-hmm. not debate. And if there is dissent or disagreement, it's nuanced and it's utterly respectful. And I think that's frankly why people like that yeah. podcast. And I could feel myself in reaction to Beth's, what I'm just going to say was to me really just inability to answer for the, for, for the, the sins of what it, what the GOP is now. Um, I could feel myself pushing back against this kind of, well, you know, we're just a couple of gals talking politics and she's from the right and I'm from the left and hey, we all get along. And I could feel myself going, you know, I'm not really sure that that's the appropriate way to deal with them, especially because at that time there was so much that was going on about families. Yeah, this was right during the middle. Yeah. Which is still going on and and the atrocities and the internment camps. And like Mm -hmm. when history looks back on this, they're not going to say, oh, well, there's some good Germans. That's not how that movie ends. Yeah. They go, if you were responsible for these moral atrocities, then you were responsible for them. Well, and if you, you know, so. I think, I think Steve, that's why that conversation stuck with me and why I went about looking up your book. And that's probably a good segue into your book, because I think what I, what really struck me as you were talking was you, you said something along the lines of, I appreciate that we want to tell that there's this soundbite right now that, well, we just need to tell better stories, that we need to rise above and redeem the storytelling aspect of culture. And I appreciated that you wanted to pause and, and really focus on a lot of really bad stories got us here. And just telling different ones doesn't make those ones go away. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because they're incredibly powerful. Yeah. My, oh, what, what, what I've come to realize is that the bad stories is a book about faith. That's really what it's about. And it's positing the idea that the real crisis traveling underneath all of our, what they call our political trouble or these troubled times, whatever it is, is that people all across the country, everybody essentially is struggling with faith. Do they believe that their individual actions as a citizen make a difference? Mm. And are we the subjects of history or are we the objects of history? And on the right, this feeling of dislocation, lost cultural utility um, has been very carefully manipulated by people quite intentionally telling a story that says, 
you are out of control. And the reason you're out of control and you don't have as much power in a sense, you, you don't matter mm-hmm. is because of a bunch of elites living in big cities, fan, studying their fancy books, giving away your birthright, your inheritance to people of color, to women, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. That's been the message. It's not what are you for, it's who are you against. And that's not a coincidence. I mean, they literally, we have a media landscape because of the you know, because of the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, frankly, or at least that was the the central accelerant that has monetized and made incredibly lucrative the telling of bad stories. And those bad stories are in alliance with a set of kind of myths that are really about trying to get people in office who are serving corporate interests rather than human interests. And you know, that sounds kind of technical and, and you know, like somebody's read a lot of long haired books would say such a thing. But it really redounds at a very basic human level in almost every decision that's made. If you care about the environment, the decisions that are being made are on, on behalf of petrochemical companies, not communities that that are being ruined by strip mining or by, you know, or by climate change. Here we have this hurricane that's about to, you know, tear the shreds out of North Carolina. These big weather events the fires out in California, all of it, if you step back from history, is related. The same thing is true about, you, you can tick down the list, families being separated at the border, healthcare becoming harder, to, you know, uh, labor rights becoming more and more difficult to enforce, wealth being aggregated more and more, wealth and power within a, a very slender band of, of the country. And all of that stuff is not by mistake. And people like Beth, I think, want to sort of, well, both sides of the aisle have their difficulties and their problems. And, you know, both that did it. And I'm like, actually, here's the deal. Everybody, there are no bad people, but there are people who are under the influence of bad stories. We're all of us, in a sense, under the influence of good stories and bad stories. The good ones make us merciful, make us hopeful, make us believe, have faith. In, in our efficacy, in our relationships, in our families, in our communities, in our work, and in our citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. The Sermon on the Mount, incredible story. I don't care whether it's true or not. I don't care if some homeless rabbi was flouncing around the Sea of Galilee preaching that. I believe the stories he's telling. It, it is our job to, to get money and greed and power out of our heads and to focus on the needs of the least among us. What a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. The, and and those, those kinds of stories suffuse our religious myths, and they're almost entirely absent in our political discourse. And the central engine of what the Republican Party has become in the GOP is essentially a set of bad stories that is all about trying to gin up racial resentment to keep people from focusing on economic justice, on the on the equalizing of opportunity. That is the great story at the center of the American experiment in yeah. self-governance is the idea that it's our job not to make everybody equal, but to equalize opportunity. And it is um you know, what I'm trying to do in the book is much less partisan or, or angry or aggrieved than I, I think I sounded on that podcast. Uh, it's, it's when I come into con, when I come into contact with people who so, somehow want to, they want to tell themselves the story that they're a good Republican, that they're one of the good ones who's trying to save the party. And I'm like, you want to save that party? then you need to find another party that reflects your values because you can't simultaneously say, well, Trump is terrible and, oh, I hate this policy and I hate that policy 
and be a part of what has become his party. That's the power that they're enacting. That's because what your, every... your premise is, Steve is saying that this, these, these stories aren't accidents that the, they were, they were crafted. Um, can you give me an example? Um, one, one, just to put, uh, one sure. quote on the table, there was, um, I think you'll have a, a better example than this, but I, I was really struck by the quote from, uh, Les Moonves, who's of course now back in the press. Uh, but right. when he said, um, well, it referring to Trump may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS that there right. was that idea that, well, who cares? This is, this is ratings. Um, right. The money's rolling in. I mean, mm -hmm. what, and people sort of expect somehow that Les Moonves is going to be an arbiter of morality. That's not his job. He's the CEO of a big corporation. His job is to make money. That's his job. And if Trump helps him make money, then that's the horse he's going to ride on. Yeah. And so I think there's this idea. I mean, ultimately, what I'm suggesting is it redounds to the individual citizen. The media diet that we consume, our level of activism, our level of um, uh, how much we choose to educate ourselves, yeah. how much we try to examine the bad stories that live in us. People on the left tell themselves a story while the right is sort of casting America as a horror movie with the dark other forever lurking on the borders and sleeper cells, whatever it is. People on the left sort of say, well, actually, America is a farce. And the way to deal with this tragedy isn't to get off your ass and become politically active and renew your faith. It's to laugh at comedians who are the only reasonable, the only people whose response to this is reasonable. They make us laugh at something that really otherwise would make us cry. I think that's a terrible story. Well, there's a couple of those that, that struck me that um, when you were, when in reading the book, there's, there's some stories that seem like they've been around for quite some time. Some stories that were more, um, they seemed like they emerged although maybe they had the roots uh, in history, they seemed like they emerged during Trump's election cycle. So <clears throat> the one, for example, that stuck out as, as more here and now was Trump as a change agent. You, you push back on saying right. something along the lines of, well, Trump is unpredictable in the same sense that a bull in a china shop's unpredictable. The outcomes are unpredictable, but the input isn't. Where that story felt very here and now, and sort of one yeah. that we all just universally decided we were going to buy into as of 2015. But then you also right. talk about some of those more, the stories that have been working on us for quite some time that we didn't even realize changed our behavior. Can you give some examples of those, the stories that have been there for a while? Yeah. So, I mean, since we've been talking about families being separated at the border, I think there is this story that we tell ourselves, a set of naive myths um, about America as a melting pot. As a, 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 as a country that's vitiated by, by immigration, that's fed by it, that's sustained. Bring us your poor huddled masses, masses. There's the Statue of Liberty. There's every movie you can think of where, you know, somebody wants to come to America because it, it's a beacon of hope and liberty and da-da-da. It's a kind of self-serving myth about the mansion on the hill, about the great country that is, you know, sort of the lone superpower that's going to rescue the huddled masses. It's not that it is entirely untrue, but America has always had a very fraught and um, ambivalent relationship towards immigration. Um, we have always hated and vilified and exploited and killed immigrants. You know, if you travel back 200 years, 
it's indentured servants. It's the Chinese who built the railroads, who, you know, who, who were who were essentially worked to death and oftentimes in riots killed. Uh, it, it was it was the the Italians and the Irish, uh, you know, who were who were targeted by the know nothings, you know, anti-Catholic groups. And, um, you know, you can go down the list now. It's, you know, and, and that's not even getting into the people who were brought to this country as property. Right. Right. So now now we have a second bad story that's, I think, foundational. If you can think the story of America as a representative democracy, we want to believe that's what we are. That has never been true. It wasn't true when when the guy who wrote All Men Are Created Equal owned people as property. It wasn't true you know, during the Jim Crow era. And it's not true today when you've got an electoral college system that utterly privileges rural, white, dominated, sparsely populated states in our Senate. You've got open gerrymandering. You've got a relentless effort to pack the courts and suppress voters of color and younger voters and uh, voters who are immigrants. These things, unless we look them in the face and say, our system is rigged. I mean, the thing is, is that Trump was telling the truth in certain respects, just always in a way that didn't apply to him. Right. You know, I think of all of his accusations as confessions, and I think of them in a certain way when he said it's a rigged system, you damn straight it was rigged, mm. and you lost by three million votes, pal, and you needed Russian help, which drives him crazy, but is utterly true, and you needed every effort in terms of voter suppression in Wisconsin and elsewhere. Well, that, that I know I'm cutting you off, Steve, but the two things that struck me as you were talking, the for people who aren't familiar with this, one of the data points you listed in the book was that um, new voter identification laws were introduced in Wisconsin, which reduced turnout by 200,000 in a state. You said that Clinton lost by 23,000. And primarily in, in Milwaukee, in, in, you know, in the quote unquote inner city where voters are as a rule. I mean, all this stuff, Josh, is targeted. Here's the way I look at it. And this is the reason why I think I had difficulty um, almost sort of stomaching uh, somebody who said, I'm a good Republican and they're good Republicans because none of this stuff is a coincidence. This is all by design. When your only interest is to gain power and to use that power to aggregate wealth, you know, amongst your donor class, when that's your central motive, it isn't governance, it isn't taking care of everybody. Nobody believes when Trump says we are the American people, that he's referring to anybody of color, that he's referring to any immigrant, that he's referring to anyone who's poor. What he's referring to is my base, my people, right? And primarily his people being really rich people who he, you know, moves through his life interacting with and sucking up to. Yeah. You would use the term uh, wolf whistle instead of dog whistle with him, I think. Just the the extremity of his language that made its way into the ears it's why david duke could say yeah he's it's we know like we love what he's up to but then trump could simultaneously say well i never said anything and it's all it's all the you know the white nationalism the racism announcing your candidacy what he figured out is the gop has enough people who were are tribal enough that they'll go along with it frankly people like the host of that you know that podcast who because ultimately the white nationalists, the people who are who have really listened to talk radio for 40 years and it's changed the way they think about the world. They become angry and aggrieved and paranoid and, and very much sort of are completely focused on their racial resentment. They're sort of 
constant projection machines whose mm-hmm. self-hatred and feelings of y- lost utility have become weaponized. Their shame essentially has become weaponized. You can't touch them. They're not going to be moved. I'm not going to say anything that convinces them that their worldview is wrong because they have talented, skilled, highly profitable demagogues who speak to them every day and explain why the world is ripping them off and who's to blame, right? So then the question becomes, when a Trump arises, who are the, who are the people who say, I cannot stand that, I cannot accept that? Yes, I'm a loyal Republican. Like Reagan said about the Democrats, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, they left me. That's how I feel there's about, I would say more than half of people who identify themselves as Republicans are not okay Mm -hmm. with Trump. The only way they could bring themselves to vote for him is by essentially telling themselves a set of stories about Hillary Clinton, how awful she is, how depraved, how, you know, uh, corrupt and so forth. And what I think they had to do that, and I talked to a lot of them, they had to do that because there was no way in the clear light of day that they, you know, with any intellectual or moral integrity could say, yeah, I'm okay with that guy who I wouldn't allow near a playground being the leader of not just America, but of my party. In other words, there have to be enough people at a certain point, whether it's Les Moonves or an individual Republican voter who says, that's too far. That's fringe behavior. I'm not going to give that a megaphone. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to film that guy being a rock and roll entertainer and ginning his people up and talk, uh, fantasizing about assassinating his opponent or any of the other things he did. Because if I give that guy a big megaphone, if I, you know, if I have the constant feed, I'm making it seem like he's a really big, important politician. But that's not what he is. He's an entertainer. And there's, I think, a difference that unfortunately really got blurred. That was uh, one of my, one of the chapters I enjoyed more. And you even brought yourself into critique around the fourth estates being such a participant in these stories and such a profiter of these stories. And that that so many of these, like Trump was like a fire that we just kept giving oxygen to and then right. asking well, why does the fire keep growing? And then we just kept giving him oxygen. And I mean, yeah, I mean, the the way I thought about it is he's Ahab. I love that analogy. You know, he's the specter of wounded masculinity, out of control, but there's something in his anarchic quality, his, I am going to say the darkest thing that everybody is thinking that is liberating. There is a part of us that gets off on it. Some of us get off on, yeah, he's speaking for me. He's saying things out loud that I feel I can't say because of political correctness or yeah. whatever. And then there were a whole bunch of other people, myself included, and and I continue to battle with this, who are absolutely hypnotized by yeah. him as a signal of our own virtue, that he's so depraved and so screwed up that I can't wait to read about what he's we done next. We feel more righteous. What, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it feeds that cycle because what he's done is essentially weaponized shame. He said, if I say something outrageous, people of good faith are going to be outraged and will insult me and come after me. And what I'll be able to say to my people is, you see, they look down on you. They think you're dumb. They think you're ignorant. They think yeah. you're racist. It's kind of brilliant. And yet it's brilliant in the way that a a, a kind of, um, you know, a demagogue is brilliant. Mm -hmm. They figure out the way not to say something that's useful, not to say something that will solve a problem or 
be a part of the great experiment in self-governance. It's something that is meant to aggregate attention for the sponsors. That's what he does. You know, I'm struck by um, something you said a, a few um, a few minutes ago that I wanted to come back to that, that has to do with more of the maybe zooming out on the idea that a story can influence our behavior without us realizing it. What struck me is you were right. talking about the, the narrative of never liking immigrants. Right. What, how, what do you make of the you know, third and fourth generation Irish who, when first arriving in New York, were not welcome to now right. being just one of the, who, who basically bought into that, that story. How does that happen over a couple of generations where you, yeah. you, were, you were persecuted and now you're persecuting? Right. Well, look, I mean, everybody's always trying to pull up the ladder after you've gotten onto the lifeboat. You know, th th that is a natural reaction. And I think it arises from the basic idea that we, and this is the bad story that I think, again, is a psychological, emotional bad story that we all, to one extent or another, participate in. But it's, it's especially prominent in this question you're asking. We exalt our grievances as a way of hiding from our vulnerabilities. If you grew up in a, in a household of an immigrant, an Irish immigrant, there was a lot of shame. You were teased. You were made to feel bad for being Irish. You were given uh, you were marginalized and redlined economically. There was a political, you know, political profit to be made from insulting you and from vilifying you. And that you had to take that on, that bigotry, that bitterness, that doesn't go away. Your, your mom and dad's, your family cultures, your community's sense of bitterness, of being looked down upon, of being victimized, doesn't just disappear. It's insoluble. And the moment that you, having to absorb all that, naturally makes you want to then find somebody else to kick around, somebody else who's the low man on the totem pole. This was the great um, dark gray, uh, uh, innovation of race. It's a made-up thing. It's, yeah. and the pigment has nothing to do with our genetic material, our endowments, the content of our character. It's made up. Mm -hmm. But this is what, again, by design, wealthy people in the colonies before we were even a country looked at Bacon's Rebellion where you know people got together who were who the poor basically got together and said you know who's really messing us over the people in the castles the landed gentry the people with the plantations if we join together there are more of us than there are of them and we can you know we can try to enforce some kind of economic justice people got freaked out the people in power got freaked out the white european people in power i should say the european people of with with light pigmentation and they made up this idea there's well actually there's a pigmentary alliance between me rich white person and you poor white person me which rich european with lots of land and you poor european who's an indentured servant you and i are allies the real enemy are the people with dark pigmentation. We'll call them black, even though they're not black. We'll call them black or whatever it is, dot, 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 all the words we use to mm -hmm. signify that. Um, and if you can get people focused on that racial resentment, you will, people will shift away from the real question, which is equality of opportunity, economic justice. The thing that's remarkable, if you think about kind of what the two candidates who came from nowhere, they didn't come from nowhere, but who in the popular imagination seemed to come from nowhere. One was a, an entertainer, a demagogue who very, who realized where the GOP was going and realized that he could sort of 
turbocharged the ethno-nationalist talk radio talking points. He inherited that audience in that everybody else would go along because they were so feckless, they didn't know what to do because they were so dead set against a woman or someone of the other tribe possibly being elected. That's how hyperpartisan things had become. So Trump figured that out. He was not saying anything new. He was saying the same crap he's been saying for 30 years, which he got from talk radio. But on the other side, there was this other voice, which was Bernie Sanders, who mm. was saying, there's no reason we can't take, in a country this abundant and wealthy, that we can't take a few yachts from the richest people so that everybody can go to, to college if they want for free, or that everybody can get health care. Those ideas were so commonsensical, so simple and easy to understand, so firmly focused on the idea of economic justice and equality of opportunity that a ton of people, myself included, said, yes, where has this missing voice been in American political life? And that was really more remarkable if you think about it. Trump was an entertainer. He could insult people. He could make it a reality TV show. And he knew that America would tune in because the fourth estate is a for-profit endeavor, right? Even Jon Stewart in his last broadcast went on and on and on about Trump because he was such good material, right? And he said next to nothing about Bernie Sanders. You know why? Because Bernie Sanders isn't shtick. Bernie Sanders' message could be converted into entertainment. It was the dry, sober business of a mature democracy. Are we going to try to equalize opportunity? Are we going to make these, you know, higher education available? That, that stuff is vitally important, but it's not entertainment. Well, and you had and, mentioned yeah. at one point in the book, you had said... Um... You basically said that people have become an audience, that we have become right. an audience. And I wonder if you right. wouldn't expound on that, because that seems like such a core thread that relates to other non, well, I shouldn't say non-political, but things that are uh, also top of mind right now, privacy, social media, et cetera. Can you talk yeah. about that one? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so this is Neil Postman's theory. He was writing in 84 trying to sort of take stock of the Reagan era, the fact that a, a former actor, w at least a, a serious politician as well, right? He'd been the governor of California for two terms, but he was an actor. He got his start as an actor and an orator. And so Postman's looking at this, and he's asked to write about 1984, and he comes to realize that America in 1984, before we even had the Mac computer, right? Before we even had the internet or any of that, had become in the thrall, so in the thrall of television and televised entertainment that we were much closer to Brave New World, the Aldous Huxley novel, than we were in 1984. The, the great threat wasn't from a, a state that was going to surveil us at every moment and was going to ultimately crack down in an authoritarian way and limit our freedoms. The, the great threat was that we were amusing ourselves to death that we were literally so in the thrall of entertainment that we couldn't take anything seriously. We couldn't have serious discourse. And once a culture can no longer have serious discourse, once it all becomes a form of entertainment, then you're ultimately going to elect an entertainer. That's what's gonna happen. You can't look at entertainment day in, day out for most of your life and not realize that if there's no countervailing serious discussion of what policy matters happen, what morality is important to us as a people, dot, 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 what policies we should pursue, that's the kind of politics you're going to get. You're going to get one that spends, you know, 
10% of the entire election coverage was about policy. 10%, not mm -hmm. one question about climate change in all three of those debates, the only forum that, that existed to, to actually get these guys to talk about the issues unfiltered. You know, nobody could ask a serious question. And when they got a, an answer that was obviously fraudulent or evasive, or they could not take it seriously. They were all part, and I mean by this, everybody who interviewed the candidates, all the coverage of the candidates, there was a certain idea that it was just entertainment. Right. And I'll tell you, Josh, you know, when I watched the election returns coming in, you could see this moment where the facade was cracking and people were realizing, yeah, hold on a second, this isn't entertainment. We just made this decision, a reality TV show decision that's actually going to happen to the country. We, we wanted so badly to be entertained, whether in rapture or disgust, we wanted to follow Ahab and we followed him. And you know what? Now that's who's president. And you could see these guys, these professional newsies. Yes. They were like, what is going on? And mm -hmm. it's like, well, history called your bluff. You treated this guy like a serious presidential candidate. You, you know, you gave him all that oxygen. The fire got bigger and bigger and bigger. There was a system that was utterly vulnerable in all the ways that I try to set out in, you know, in, in bad stories, not just because of voter suppression or the electoral college or, you know, any of that stuff, but just voter apathy. Yeah. If the whole mission is to shrink the electorate to make it rather than 230 million voters, to make it 100 million voters or 120 million voters, you know, if you can get enough people disgusted and turned off, well, then you can find a, a, a narrow little path through. And you could see that these people simply could not, it was this tragic moment where you could see them going, holy crap, we did this. Yeah. We were part of this. Have you heard anyone articulate that sense with such uh, culpability, such self-reflective culpability? No. Because it seems like everyone just sort of swallowed hard and then woke yeah. up the next morning and did the same thing they'd been doing the last few years. Yeah. Well, the thing is, Josh, it's interesting because I, for instance, went after the New York Times really hard. And I write a column for the Times. I did this podcast for the Times. I've written for the Times. It's one of our greatest, if not our greatest journalistic organ. Okay. So I'm not sitting there bashing the New York Times for every decision they make or painting them with a broad brush. They're absolutely essential to that they're a serious, they're our most serious newspaper. But it's for that reason that I hold them to account. And when eight days before the election, they had three stories about a, a story, of, you know, involving Hillary's email scandal, a story that they knew to be at best, at best, a bureaucratic bungle, right? And that was being actively turned into some big giant deal merely to try to vilify her and give people, however, you know, give Republicans, frankly, and independents who are e either, you know, trouble, troubled by the idea of voting for a Democrat or voting for a woman or whatever it was, to give them an ethical hook to hang their vote on, right, to hang their Trump vote on. That was what that bad story about Hillary's email was all about. And when the New York Times has three stories above the fold and essentially says this is the most important story and it's practically the only story anybody should be talking about, you are in part responsible for what yeah. came down. You know, it, and, and the, yeah. go ahead, Steve, go ahead. Well, just the last six or seven days of the campaign were utterly dominated by that story. Yeah. That was the central story. And then you look at the data of what happened 
with those polls, well, everybody, every undecided voter who couldn't decide between the two was pelted with endless email coverage, and it caused 2 to 3% shift towards Trump, which was just enough. If there'd been any other narrative, or if the Times had said, you know what, this is a story, it's definitely happened, but we as an arbiter of news are not going to get, we're just going to write one story. And the two other stories are going to be about policy matters, you know, or, or something more substantial. You have a clear sense, or Flint, Michigan, since that was in the news then, it was buried inside. If they'd made different editorial decisions and recognized that that was a story that was a, a story of very little significance that was being ginned up, I believe there would have been a different electoral result. And so you have to hold those people accountable. It's one of those, I'm, I'm glad you did uh, uh, look to hold them accountable because I think one of the things that has been so frustrating um, and, and caused me to think and just pause out of uh, curiosity is that so many people seemed to infer that their hands were tied throughout all this. And especially at the media level, like, well, it, we're it's just, crazy. it's, it's, and there was that quote you put in from James Baldwin, where you said the people who run the mass media and those who consume it are really in the same boat. They must continue to produce things they do not admire, still less love in order to buy things they do not really want, still less need. And that's from Baldwin. 59. And I'm like, right. How in the hell is that right. still what's happening? How have we not looked yeah. this in the eye yet or done anything with this to the point where all of the media outlets can be like, well, our hands are tied. He said something inflammatory. We have to. Right. It's so fascinating, Josh, because one of the things, again, Trump would say the system is rigged. And what he was saying resonated because people feel my vote doesn't matter. Da, da, da. It's just that nobody bothered to say the system is rigged and it's rigged in your favor, white guy, and always has been. In the same way, he would say it's fake news. And it resonated in part because people like Jon Stewart and Samantha Bee and whoever else have been sending the same message about how fake the media is and full of hype and these pa endless panels of people brawling, you know, these rhetorical brawls. It's all a form of entertainment. It's not an effort to educate us. The first question is, will it stimulate? Will it get clicks? Not is this an important story for people to know about? And what's fascinating is I did a, a reading, you know, probably a month or two ago, and I was a, a, ver a host of an NPR show. A woman I very much respect as a journalist was saying exactly what you just said, Josh. She was saying, well, you know, we have our days planned. We have our show planned. She does a show five days a week. And she said, and then Trump will send out one of these crazy tweets. And she looked at the audience helplessly and said, and what are we supposed to do? Yeah. What are we supposed to do? Not cover it? And I very quietly but firmly said, yes, yes. that's what you do. You don't cover it when the person who is the fount of bad stories, who's actively trying to get propaganda and disinformation out there, is doing that by design to take up all the oxygen, to make a fake controversy where there's a real truth that's quite obvious and questions that should lead from that truth. You don't cover it. You don't cover the fire over and over again. Th think about what's happening as this, as this hurricane's about to hit South Carolina, right, as we're talking. And people are realizing, hey, the Trump administration had the opportunity to respond to this terrible, devastating two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. The, the response was inadequate, inept, criminally negligent and confused. And as a result, the, the effects is 3,000 Puerto Ricans 
including, you know, we have, I have friends who have family who are mm-hmm. still on the island were killed. And a lot of people were without electricity, so forth, in a way that would never happen right. in, in mainland America and in certainly in white America. That would never happen. People would be, you know, wouldn't have electricity for an afternoon and they'd be ready to get out their guns, right? So Puerto Rico was a disaster. And all the president has to say is, oh, that's fake. Those numbers are fake. The Democrats made it up. And here we go again. The bad story right. gets all the oxygen. And suddenly we're talking about you know, we're, we're sort of ha- we're we're locked in a debate about some made up conspiracy because and, the president right, said and it. The, and and not only are we locked into a debate about a made up conspiracy, we're we're analyzing to the letter 140 characters and trying to extract right. meaning from it. We're not even almost debating is there merit in what he said. It's mostly like, well, what could he mean by this? And you're like, what? Why are right. we why are we talking about right. that? Well, the other the other question you could ask is, okay, is it okay? Um, you know, and, and if we agree that it's not okay, then what? Is it okay that the president doesn't have to answer any questions that he can't control? That he can just call into Fox and Friends or or speak to his rallies and you know and da 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 or tweet, and that he never actually has to face direct questions from from the fourth estate. Is that okay? We basically said, yeah, that's okay. And then we've gone a step further and said, and actually, if your pundits, if your propagandists, your disinformation agents are entertaining, if we love to hate watch them, then we'll have them on the shows over and over again. Yep. Rudy Giuliani, standing invitation. Kellyanne Conway, so glad you can make it. When those, it's, it's really, Josh, an epistemological crisis. When you're, when, when under the cover of uh, journalistic responsibility, you are enabling propagandists and people who are openly agents of disinformation, whose central mission is to sow discord and confusion, to spread propaganda, not to in any way respond factually or, or in a morally responsible way to w- questions that arise about what they're doing. With the government, with it in relation to a particular investigation, their past actions. What do you do? And to me, the answer is you do not openly invite people on whose mission is to lie. You just don't do it. It's epistemologically and morally unacceptable. Do you think but that's that happening out of answer. a desire to be the one to crack the the lies, to get the scoop, to be the the one to finally to finally ask the question that Kellyanne Conway can't answer? Is that where that's coming from? Of course, but 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 because it's entertainment. Yeah. In other words, it it's I think it's important to move beyond and what I've tried to do in the book over and over and over again is say I know that it's easy to blame the the fourth estate and they should be held responsible and yet it's a for-profit endeavor at this point. They air what we watch. If we're disgusted by pundits brawling or mouthpieces lying, you know, in this brazen manner, then we have to tear our eyes away from that. We can't just hate watch democracy because it's going to, they're going to continue to feed us. It's like junk food, you know, they're going to continue to feed us so long as we keep buying. And I wish that the fourth estate was regulated. I wish that it was regulated by the government. I don't, I'm You talked earlier tra- about the fairness doctrine. I don't think very many people yeah. would know what that is. Would you, this seems like a good time to expound on that. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty simple. When mass media arose, this is radio at the beginning of the 20th century, a bunch of smart lawmakers saw that they suddenly 
were encountering, American democracy was encountering something that it never anticipated, which is mass media that could reach millions of ears at the same time. And when you have something that powerful and it's over the public airwaves, they reasoned, I think, very reasonably, okay, well, so that whatever, whoever owns those licenses has to agree that they have a civic responsibility. If they're going to use the public airwaves, it should be in the public interest. And that means no lying, no propagandizing, and no spouting of only one opinion. You have a responsibility to, uh, to cover controversial issues, and you have a responsibility to include all reasonable shades of opinion. That was the sole—it was essentially saying, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's have a healthy debate about whatever it is—reproductive rights, gun control, taxation, whatever. And what Reagan recognized in the midst of his deregulating or his people recognized was if we can deregulate media and get rid of this onerous fairness doctrine, then we make media a marketplace. And then if people want to spout an opinion that is highly successful, that draws a big audience, a demagogic opinion, then they should have the right to do that. And the country will be better off if we stop pretending that the that the fourth estate is the people's representative in Washington and understand that they're just a business like any other business and so whoever you know and, and once you remove that kind of spoiler plate on propaganda the the floodgates open and there are a whole bunch of very smart entertainers who realize if we tell a particular angry, frustrated population, a set of very seductive, bad stories that plug into their primal negative emotions, we can build a huge audience for our survival pills and our boner pills and, you know, all that stuff. And so that's what they set about doing. And the fairness doctrine wasn't perfect. It wasn't a panacea, but it was something that essentially said you cannot have 24-7 propaganda. And when that went away, you had people like my in-laws, who I love, by the way, who suddenly could move from their car to their living room, you know, to their radio at night and hear the exact same version of the world, a world that was always about white victimization, a kind of ecstatic cult of white victimization that was always saying, here's who's to blame for your trouble. It's the immigrants. It's the elites. It's the cosmopolitans, those people who look down on you. They think you're dumb. They think you're ignorant. And they're trying to, they're coming for your religion, they're coming for your way of life, they're coming for your guns, and they're probably going to kill your grandma. I mean, those are all bad stories. They're fraudulent, but geez, as a, as a writer of fiction, I recognize the way that you grab the reader is by ratcheting up the threat level. Well, if you want to build an audience and you're a demagogue, that's what they did. And I think it happens on the right because it's easier in a sense. They don't have to worry about the reality of climate change. The left is stuck with these bad stories to tell. And by bad, I mean difficult to absorb. If we really listen to the story on the left when it comes to climate change, it's like, wow, for 200 years we've been using petroleum. It's made our lives so much more convenient, but it's ruining the planet. And our kids are going to be living an apocalyptic hellscape if we don't get rid of some of our creature comforts and make our lives more inconvenient in the short term. The story, that's a hard story. The story on the right is there are a bunch of eggheads who think you're stupid, who are getting government money to make you feel bad for driving an SUV. Don't believe it. Hey, that story is completely fraudulent. But if I'm sitting there in an SUV, I'm going to say, you know what? I like what, I like what kid contestant B is saying. I'm going to, I'm going to say a few things and then end with a question, but the culture at large, which would 
create the fairness doctrine seems to be so different from the culture now. The idea that there could, I can't imagine anyone proposing, much less <laughs> crafting legislation around a fairness doctrine. So I'm, I'm wondering right. what, what happened to the collective consciousness and, and in that case, maybe you could say morality that, that, that 50 years ago, there were a lot of, imp, uh, I shouldn't say imperfect, there were a lot of horrible things happening, but you still had the ability to create these big infrastructures that seem to be based on some ethical responsibility. Whereas now, like I said, fairness doctrine today, Right. Well, I can't at the moment, but I think when you talk about, so you're absolutely right that there's, there's an essential kind of decency and basic moral logic that's continually being confounded. And it's partly, again, I'm arguing in bad stories. It's because we're entirely focused on the bad stories. And until we're honest about those bad stories and their, how deep they run and how corrosive they've become, to our faith as citizens, right? That, that internal sense of like, Hey, there has to be, I believe like, I believe that most people are, are people of good faith. I honestly believe that most Americans want, want the same things. They want to solve basic problems. They want their kids to, you know, be able to, to, you know, have a decent education. They, they want decent, uh, healthcare, you know, all this basic Basic stuff stuff that, Right. Basic stuff. None of it's really complicated. None of it is, is especially hard to track or, or, and that's sort of across the board. And when people are frustrated, when they feel like that's not what government's doing, there are a couple of, there are a couple of ways you can deal with that. One is to kind of buy into a a paranoid mindset that says everybody's corrupt. And at least the people who are corrupt on my behalf, the bullies are more effective. And the other possibility you have is to unpack the much more complicated story of how we got to a place where it's controversial to say that media shouldn't be propaganda where somehow it's just okay that there are people who are paid to lie day after day to get people wound up because it builds their audience and the the one of the major political parties in the country has figured out that it also builds their electoral base and that it gets it reduces every conversation every dialogue about how to solve problems into an argument about who wins about whose interests are being served that seems like another big bad story that there's always a that that it's always a battle. It's always a us versus them, winner, loser. And of course, Trump comes along and says that's exactly what it is. And it's always been that. I mean, he's not just reaching back to the 1950s or the 1850s. He's reaching back to the 1550s. He's he's creating a world that's really like the world that Hobbes describes, the political you know philosopher Hobbes, who's essentially saying man stripped to his essence is at a state of war with other men around honor and shame. And so in as much as we want to sort of sit there and say, well, gee, you know, but America's founded on tolerance and, um, excuse me, and, you know, all of these um, kind of principles that are uh, uh, idealistic and hopeful, Trump is kind of our id saying, nah, 
underneath all of that slick marketing that we do on Facebook and on Twitter, all that virtue signaling is a kind of raw state that we live in. We're aggrieved. We're stuck in snarls of traffic. We're pissed off. We feel that we're not taken care of as we should be. Everybody's on the make. There's nobody with any integrity left. There's nobody and nothing to believe in. And once you're in that state, it becomes quite easy for a demagogue to say, well, you know what? If you're, if you're already halfway there, a good demagogue is going to take you the rest of the way to faithlessness. They're going to be able to say to you, you know what, that bad story, that the, the evil part of you, the, the part of you who's thwarted and disappointed and aggrieved, suspects is the truth, that really is the truth. And if you listen to it for long, and that it's reasonable to be afraid. Um, I mean, this is the reason for me, like, I. I saw all this coming partly because I, I, it's, I think a lot about the American story. And, you know, I wrote this novel. It, it was not a good novel, but I, I sort of realized there is this pathway for a really effective entertainer demagogue to get to the White House. There is this pathway. And the pathway is if everything's entertainment anyways, and if it's really entertaining when people are bad when they're nasty, when they're mean, if they can stoke those primal negative emotions and there's nothing to stop them, there's, no, there's not enough people of good conscience who take it seriously, that they'll walk away from the GOP, that they'll turn their back on, on the party and say, you know what, we got to lose this election in order to save our conscience or whatever. Then you create the substrate, the possibility for somebody like Trump. But it's it was it has been building for you know really for the entirety of american history and the question that i now sort of that that's ricocheting around my mind right now is can like can human beings change can democracies yeah. change can we change at a cultural level what do you think well i think that this election the 2018 election is the most important of my lifetime which sounds crazy given the stakes of of all, of all in the last 50, few. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But I honestly believe that we now know, taken to its logical extreme, we understand where one of the major political parties has gone and what they're okay with. We can see it setting out in real time a, a cabinet full of, of people who are, who are utterly corrupt, a, a president without any kind of moral center who's a purely transactional person, who's insecure, incurious, dangerously inept, so dangerous that the people around him are, are trying to keep him from, you know, doing something catastrophic, right? It's not that the president's leading, it's that the president is just being contained and also is continually uh, spouting bad stories that are profitable and so that become the dominant form of our discourse. The only, and I mean by that, propagandistic, divisive stories, fraudulent stories, willfully naive stories. So if that's the case, and we now understand who the right is, then the question becomes, who are we? There's no longer any question. Stop being offended by the latest thing that he tw you know, tweets or any of that stuff. Stop being offended by the complicity and enabling of, of the Republicans in Congress. That's who they are. The question becomes, who are the rest of us? And is there an, are there enough citizens of good conscience, of good faith, that they can completely repudiate that style of politics? Because any other way of trying to get rid of Trump isn't getting rid of him. 
if you just try to respond to the outcome and you don't actually get at the cause, the, the bad stories, the argument in, in bad stories is we are not going to fix democracy. You have to trace these back to the, what caused them. And what caused them is whatever it is, 17 bad stories that I try to set out and lots of others. Uh, those are just the ones that I can include. The last of which is the, the bad story that America is incapable of moral improvement. That's a terrible, fraudulent story. It's a cynical, hopeless story, and it's utter nonsense. We used to have slavery in this country. We didn't allow women to vote. We had segregation. We had, you know, uh, um, immigrants being lynched and people of color being lynched. We have made, and, and people who chose to love somebody of the same gender being vilified and marginalized and, and you know, killed. We've made a tremendous amount of moral progress. And every time it happened, it happened because a whole bunch of people stood up and said, I am not going to be the object of history. I do not consent to that arrangement. I'm going to be the subject of history. So what I've been trying to do in anticipation of this election is to say, what can I do to be a subject of history? I'm, you know, I'm a teacher of writing. That's a lot of what I do. So I've been giving, doing these workshops where I ask people rather than paying me to just contribute $150 to a candidate or cause they believe in, whatever it is. It could be a conservative candidate. I just want them to be politically engaged. I want them to start the process of figuring out what do I believe and what role can I play in trying to make that belief something real in the world. Um, you know, I, I feel like I take myself as a gauge. I was not as involved in the 2016 election as I was in the elections uh, you know, uh, uh, the first Obama election, the second one, I was just simply more involved. I was more passionate. I had a sign. And I take my individual effort and passion and activism in whatever form it takes as a gauge. When people come to my readings all the time, Josh, if you come to the, when I, you know, speak in Minneapolis, yeah. you'll see people will say, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? How do we, will the millennials save us? Will the media save yeah. us? And I always say, hold on. The person who's going to save you is sitting in your seat. The person who's going to save you, look like in church, look at the person to your right and to your left. That's who's going to save you. It's not coming from some other greater force. The greater forces in our country are corporations who have a very particular agenda that's about their corporations. All this business of, oh, well, maybe there's, you know, sort of corporations can play some role of, of good in the it's like nonsense. They have their set of interests, which are corporate interests and economic interests. Human be they've got a cash register. You have a conscience. All it takes is for enough of us people of good conscience to say, I'm going to be politically active in whatever respect that means. And I do think that if enough people have their faith restored, then, the then that pendulum will start to push back in the other direction, but only if people put their shoulder to it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's not going to happen by tweeting or Facebooking right. or any of that stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things we haven't talked much in this conversation, but does come up continuously in the book is our own individual culpability. And you talk a lot about apathy and there's a turn of phrase you used um, that I really liked. I can't remember what it is, but it was something about we've traded, uh, we, we celebrate our grievances and what was it? Yeah, as a way of hiding from our vulnerabilities. Yes. Yeah. And that and that we to the point where we can we can vote for someone who who embodies and embraces a policy that is detrimental to us. Right. 
Right. And people say this all the time. Well, how could those rural voters, you know, who are going to have their hospitals closed and their, their health care taken away, how could they be so ignorant, so dumb? Da, da, da. And I'm like, look, we're all of us are telling ourselves a set of stories. Anytime people say, oh, the Trump voter, I'm like, well, what are you talking about? There's like 62 million people who voted for the guy, a, a large percentage of whom still some way or another justify their support for him. We all do this. We all choose from the menu, right? Even in religion, we choose from the parts of the religion that we agree with. You know, right? If, you know, if you're Catholic, you don't necessarily want to believe that your children are going to go to hell if they partake of certain vices, right? Yeah. So you choose to sort of set that aside and say, you know, I love the ritual. I love the moral grounding. I love the teachings of Christ, dot, dot, dot. This is what people are doing all the time is choosing which stories to have faith in. And what I think I'm trying to get people to realize who, who want, they want bad stories to be a book about an action plan when it's a book of ideas. And I want to say to them, I understand, I hope it's been useful in trying to figure out how we got here. I can tell you exactly how we get out of here, which is every single individual citizen recognizes the huge stake they have in the basic ideas that made the country great, equalizing opportunity, destroying privilege, breaking the alliance between big business and, and corrupt government. Everybody's got a stake in that. And you have to behave politically as passionately as the people who either can't be brought to believe that or are actively interested in concentrating wealth and power in the hands of the few. You know, the thing about um, the thing about the difficulty I have, people always say, well, I want to reach across the aisle and we need to, the problem is we need to be able to talk to each other again. And a part of me says, no, that's not really the problem. There are still lots of people who I'm never going to be able to talk to because they've been listening to a kind of propaganda that that positions me as a snob, an elite, uh, but dot, 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 you know, a, a mm -hmm. socialist, a, a fag, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my job is not to try to reach across the aisle to somebody who wants to chew my hand off. That's ridiculous. My job and all of our jobs is to say, how do we keep our faith in this moment? How do we find the people who believe as we do that, that, that uh, you know, America can be made morally great and that part of that is going to involve everybody recognizing we got lost for a while. We're out in the wilderness where there's only reality TV and Cheetos, and we have to come back to a place where we care about more than that gratification, where we care. And, and, I, and I say this like, like there's a story late in the book about um, the day after the election, you know, that this uh, there was this dad who I, I saw at the pool. I was down in Florida at this writing conference and um, he was just like this dad, just like me. Like, you know, he's, we've got all these kids. We're trying to do right by them, try to be kind to them. But they, they kind of lead us around in circles. Mm -hmm. And so I walked past him, his, his daughter, he had this cute daughter who was eating potato chips. And, I, and he said, I could hear him say, oh, honey, you know, you can't eat the, you know, stop eating those potato chips. You know, it's dinner time soon. And she just blew right through that flash of red light. She keeps, you know, wolfing down the chips. And I said to him, just like, I was just like, you know, I, I said, um, I, I said, good luck with that or something that was like, I hear you, brother. Yeah, empathy. We're in this large, yeah. yeah, this like, we're in this larger thing together. We're both prisoners to like these indomitable, you know, three-year-old girls yeah, who right. adore and like are completely helpless in front of. And 
it was just this beautiful moment of like, hey, that guy's just like another dad. If I'm really honest, he's a citizen just as much as I am, and he's a dad, and I feel him, and I love him to the extent that I can. I, I know him. I, I love what he's trying to do there. Um, the beautiful doomed mission of parenthood, right? Mm-hmm. And um, a few minutes later, I'm in the pool with my son, and he points, and he says, look at that man. Look at what he's wearing, right? And he's wearing this red Make America Great Again hat, and it's the young guy who's, you know, who I, who I sort of had this right. little interaction with. And I know that my son was looking at me in that moment, wanting me to say, oh, that jerk. Remember this day after the election. So he's doing a little victory lap, right? He's delighted that Trump has been elected. And I realized that if I indulged in front of my kid in some kind of tribal grievance against this guy, not only would that send the wrong message to my son, it would ultimately be a betrayal of of what I want bad stories to be, which is, hey, everybody's an American. The question isn't, why is he wearing that hat? You know, why is he such a meanie? The question is, what stories did that guy tell himself? And was he told that brought him to that decision? Why did 104 million uh, registered voters tell themselves a story that their vote didn't matter, right? 104 million, 40 million more than either candidate got. Why, what are the stories that cause us that individual Americans tell themselves that make it okay to support somebody who sows discord, right? Um, that turns us away from the, the, the things that we all, the problems that, we, that are bearing down on us that we really need to solve. That's the proper attitude. Not that there are bad people, but that we are struggling as individuals and as a country with a set of bad stories that we have to somehow be able to turn aside, turn away from. The, the pathway you're laying out is so counter to the stories that we get told and believe about how change works. First, you have to go through the arduous and, and um, in some ways, uh, you have to deal with your own guilt about the fact that we've all been culpable in some way or another. So staring these bad yeah. stories in the face requires that we all say, crap, I've been part of that, which, which none right. of us want to do. Right. And then secondarily, the idea that our individual actions do add up is such a right. not American cultural story. We, we celebrate, oh. and I'm such a victim of this too. Like, I would so much rather have a, a, a leader or, or a figurehead emerge that, that changes everything, that, that has broad sweeping narratives. This is why I think Obama was so attractive to so many people because right. he had this huge broad sweeping narrative. And when you get down to the policies, I think half the people didn't even know what the policies were, similar right. to, to a Trump. But that's such an unsexy idea yeah. that I have to stare these bad stories in the face, right. admit my own culpability, and then yeah. now go figure out the mess of, do I have to show up at a local, like, do I have to actually go participate in local politics? Like, what the right. heck does that What do I like? have to do? What's the roadmap for, for, for active citizenship? So here's what I would say, because I think you're, you're so precisely identifying the kind of the crisis that's bearing down on on people of good faith who are are newly awakened, morally yeah. awakened, and trying to figure out what do I do now that I'm awake? Where do I go? Where's the first step? And what I would say is a couple of things. The way that I boil it down is anguish is understandable and action is required. It is completely a reasonable response to our circumstance mm-hmm. to be in anguish. Yeah. But if you merely remain in that tape loop of of impotence, you're, you're not going to get anything done. If you just c- 
consent to the idea that just being offended or just laughing at uh, Samantha B is enough or sharing that clip. That's not political action. Uh, it, you, you have to vote. And I think you also have to figure out. So if action is required, you have to figure out what are what do I do that's authentic to myself? You make podcasts, you make documentaries, you are somebody who in your work is trying to reach people. And so part of the action you took was to say, well, I want to have this guy on who wants, who will talk about the sort of political circumstance we found, we find ourselves in. And maybe this podcast finds, even if it even finds five people right. and one of those people goes out and votes, that's action, yeah. if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. But more to the point, the, the idea is I can't worry about what the outcome is going to be. I have to have faith. That's the key word. I have to have faith that if I'm awoken and I take some kind of action that feels organic to me, it doesn't mean you have to suddenly show up at town hall and figure out what's on the ballot. What's the issue? It means you have to figure out, are there things that I'm concerned about and are there groups that are working on it? You know, when I do these workshops, the reason that I have people decide themselves what group they want to give money to is because it gets them to research. And this interesting thing happens when they do that research. They realize, hey, wow, there's a lot of people trying to do good in the world. The Southern Justice Poverty, you know, po Poverty and Law Center has been tracking hate groups and their growth and proliferation for, you know, five decades. Yeah. Right. Racists is on the border doing their work. The ACLU is doing their work and their individual candidates who are championing really important policies that will appreciably improve the, the constituents who they represent or want to represent. Those are good, beautiful stories that reinvigorate our faith when we understand we're not alone. There's a lot of people who want America to be morally better, to have a, a larger moral imagination, to be uh, a, th those stories that Christ tells, to mm -hmm. be really more Christian in that sense. And I mm -hmm. say that as an atheist Jew. Mm -hmm. I think the Sermon on the Mount is the most beautiful story ever told, right? Yeah. So I feel like once you get, once you take a little bit of action, you start to realize I'm not alone. There are a lot of other people who are walking around with this anguish and this shame. And when we're alone with it, and we don't hate, take action, it builds up and becomes more and more compounded. So we feel almost frozen, just hate watching democracy. Yeah. And that's the pattern that has to be broken. Well, and since we've, so many of us were first awoken or awakened to these things as of 2016, it feels like the game's been lost. It's, it's in the rearview mirror. And I think that's a real concern for a lot of people that it's, that my own actions it does, it does feel hopeless and helpless. And I think you get at that in the book as well and are, are on a bit of a, of a mission to try and well, counteract yeah. that. Because I think people get beaten down by what the poet uh, Wallace Stevens called the pressure of the real, this unending uh, barrage. Every time you open the browser, there's something nasty, mean-spirited, cruel, you know, corporate forces continue to aggregate, corruption runs wild, open racism tearing families apart, dot, 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 dot. They're going to overturn and make poor, you know, poor young women. Uh, they're going to criminalize uh, their choice of whether or not they want to have an abortion or not, or even receive health care. All these bad outcomes, they, they dispirit us, they depress us. But that what we're depressed about is actually the, the idea that we can't do anything about it. That's what really depresses us. And that's the big lie. That last chapter of the book is really what I'm sort of building everything towards. We have, you know, we're the country that 
that cured ourselves of the stain of slavery. We cured ourselves of the stain of, you know, we, we established suffrage so that women could vote. We have continued civil rights, the, the, the New Deal, the Great Society, the war on poverty. There was a war on poverty in this country. It was real and sustained and, and substantial in its policies and its outcomes. These are amazing things. There was a labor movement in this country. Teddy Roosevelt in 1910 gives this breathtaking, beautiful speech that is essentially what every candidate of good faith should say, you know, right? His new nationalism speech, I quoted at length in the book, mm. by way of saying, we are not, you know, um, we think that the present is the only time that's ever existed. Yeah. But the, the truth of the matter is, We've made tremendous moral progress, and we've made it when individual citizens get morally awakened. And it's hard to become, just like in our lives, it's hard to make change because it means we have to recognize that something within ourselves is broken, some set of stories that we haven't reckoned with or yeah. haven't reckoned with in the right way. It's hard to do. Mm -hmm. You know, Cheryl Strait and I saw that in our work on, on Dear Sugars I all know, the time. I know. I was going to—I was—well, and that's maybe a good—you're about yeah. to enter into another— Another phase of change. Am I, did I see this right? Are you done with Dear Sugars? Yeah, we are. And I mean, you know, that's, that's a hard story for me to accept because I love doing that work. Partly, Josh, because what it suggested was that people, these letters we got were so beautiful because it was people who were trying to change their lives. They knew that something was broken and they had to change their lives. And the thing is, it doesn't it doesn't automatically happen. It doesn't instantly happen. But if you set about doing that and unpacking the bad stories, you at least have a shot. And otherwise, you're just stuck in this sad, cynical little loop of inaction or passive reception of bad news. So what I always try to say to people is the more action you take, the less anguish you're going to feel. The more action you take, the less shame you're going to feel. And the more action you take, the more faith you're going to have. Because there is something about taking action, about saying, I, do, I am going to be a subject. I'm going to turn off the part of my brain as an American citizen that says it's my job to just passively receive as entertainment the bad data of what this country's become and say, you know what? I'm sick of that channel. I'm going to plug into a channel. It doesn't have as much of a frequency. I can't reach as many people, but this channel is called, I'm going to do something about it. And it doesn't matter what the thing is, certainly voting, but it does, you know, beyond that, it could be any number of things. My uh, daughter and I have been writing postcards to voters. Fine. She loves making art. I love seeing her creativity. We do that as well. That's fine. You know, we've been personally contributing. We've been, you know, I've been doing a number of house party readings at, at house parties. You know, I wrote the book. All of these things were my ways of saying when history looks back at us and at me, and when my kids look at me, will I be able to say to them, like I could say about, you know, my parents protested the Vietnam War, they protested for civil rights, they put skin in the game mm. and, you know, almost got arrested and were really put wow. themselves in harm's way. Well, that was the example I grew up with. And the question is, I don't know if you have kids, but for me, I have three little kids. You got two. So you want to, you know what I mean? Yeah. At some point, 30 years down the line, Josh, they, you know, when, when, when our problems are either trying to be solved or have got either way, they're going to get more serious. Yeah. And the question will redound to each of us who are parents. Did we do something in this moment? We've reached a moment of truth. Yeah. There's been a great deal of fraudulence that paved the way 
and the sowing of discord and propaganda, but we've clearly reached a moment of truth. And what are we going to do in that moment of truth? And you don't need to do everything. You just need to do one thing. Well, and, and I love the other... idea that the next thing and the next thing, and it leads to the next thing. I really, I think that's really valuable that you start with one, because that might be open a book that challenges your way of thinking. And that could be a good first step that then leads to participate externally. Because I think yeah. one of the weird things that I saw happen, and I fell into this as well, was a lot of a, a lot of kind of navel gazing in the, the analysis in the form of navel gazing. Let's seek to understand the right. other and the 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 voter who didn't vote like us and let's let's be empathetic and and i think uh, i suspect that some people just got stuck there that, yeah. it, that it stayed I, I, there yeah. i mean i also want to say like look you should have empathy for everyone but the people that i'm thinking about are like these families that have come from some kind of war-torn region in, in Central America, seeking what everybody who comes, who migrates all across the globe is safety, security, a better life. The very things we say are sort of at the foundation of our values as a country. And I mean, again, you got kids. When they started ripping families apart, I said, oh, no, no, no. This is another thing we've moved into. We're in a different place, and and it, we cannot make that normal, acceptable, okay. And the only way that we give teeth to that set of uh, uh, that kind of moral proclamation is by taking action. If all we can do is talk amongst ourselves and right. sort of kvetch and whine, and it, anguish is understandable. Action is required. The thing is, there are all kinds of examples of this. All those teachers who got together, not in blue states, but in states like Arizona and West Virginia, right, Oklahoma, they got together and said, you know, we've got a really important job. We shouldn't, we should make a livable wage. We shouldn't have to be buying supplies for our own classrooms. We deserve more for what we do. You tell us that what we do is important. You know, if you've got kids, teachers, I've worship the ground they walk on. Mm -hmm. They should be paid twice as much automatically yeah. as what they're paid in terms of how important they are. Mm -hmm. So people became empowered and they joined together and they said, we, this will not stand. We do not consent to the story in which you say we matter so much, but degrade that idea by how poorly we're treated yeah. and how little money we're able to ask to survive on. So that's a beautiful story of a whole bunch of people coming together and saying, we do not consent to this bad story. Same thing with those kids down in Parkland. They said, you know what? It took our school getting shot up for us to get outside of, um, you know, s sort of the narrative of just being a teenager and, you know, the, the, the things you worry about that are more local and immediate. It took our classmates getting gunned down, but now we get it. Guns, every other industrialized nation has figured it out. If you give access, people, people access to lots of guns, there's going to be lots more gun violence. Every other country has figured it out. We no longer consent to the fraudulent stories told by politicians who are under, you know, basically the servants of the gun lobby. And they went out and they started to tell better stories, ones that challenged that prevailing narrative and that made people recognize we need a different set of political actors. Mm -hmm. You know, the definition of craziness is expecting a different outcome and electing, you know, having, repeating the same process. 97% of Americans think there should be background checks, right? You know, 75% of Americans support immigrants and immigrant rights. Uh, you know, 80% want dependable healthcare for everyone. All this stuff, it's real obvious which candidates uh, most Americans 
believe will do a better job as stewards of the government and will be more responsive. It's simply a matter of us recognizing we're a sleeping giant. And yeah. if enough of us have faith, we're going to get up and we're going to create such a, such a big blue wave that the style of nasty, mean, cynical, despairing politics that has managed to sort of have a, have, a, have a hold on our news cycle and on our psyches will be broken. The kind of fever that we're living amidst can be broken. It won't be as interesting to check our browsers. But when we do, what we'll figure out is, hey, the government's trying to solve problems again not creating them. The government's trying to figure out the common good, not the divided interests and which side's going to win. I think people are so fed up with it. And I honestly believe that if you sort of focus on the good stories and, the, and including the good story of your own active citizenship, uh, that's, the, that's the only thing that's going to change it. Mm. None, nothing else is. None of the other measures. And it's like when you talk with somebody about an addiction or any other unhealthy pattern in their lives, they can't solve it all at once. They can only solve it one action at a time by first reckoning with the bad patterns that they're partaking in, passively consuming, you know, bad news as entertainment, dot, yeah. dot, dot, or trafficking in that bad idea that, well, you know, it's hopeless. It's all, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> that's, that, that's what, that's exactly what the corporations and people with tremendous power and wealth want you to think. And you're being a sucker if you believe them. Well, I think that's, um, I think one easy thing that people could do uh, is go read your book. Yeah. That's a, that's, <laughs> a good, that's a good start. And I think one of the things that I, I would say, I think you, you would say, I think, is that the book, I, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're a hardcore conservative, you're going to find some of the data in this book annoying. Right. But it's troubling. It's it. But it but I don't find the book to be I mean, I, I resonated with so much of it on a number of levels, but I think that the book is illuminating regardless of what side of the aisle you're on. Yeah. I really tried to write it in a way. The first draft, Josh, was very angry, very aggrieved. I, I was, you know, I was I was throwing those harpoons at all of my imagined adversaries. And then I said, wait a second. This is an American problem. I'm as much responsible for it as any other citizen, maybe more responsible in the sense that I have some small platform that, you know, for, by which my, such. yeah, you know, by, by which my activism matters. But honestly, it, 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 the, the central bad story th that I'm trying to combat is the idea that there are bad people out there. I just, I just don't believe it. I understand even somebody like Trump, I get it. He's been incredibly destructive. If you're a member of a vulnerable community, if you are the mother of a kid that was taken from you at the border, you came to the country expecting this, you know, refuge, you've got to be thinking that's a hard, that's a hard mm -hmm. dose of forgiveness to mm -hmm. be able to give. Right. But everybody is, is who they are because of the stories that they tell about themselves and that they consent to about the world around them. And you know, my job is not to get stuck trying to correct anybody else's stories. It's merely to try to bring before as many people as are willing to, you know, look at them. If we step back from history, how did we get here? And if we want to figure out how we're going to get out of here, we have to figure out how do we get to this place yeah. where somebody really smart and compassionate like you, thoughtful for a living, essentially is saying, gee, it feels pretty hopeless. Well, 
a lot of forces have brought you to that point. Right. That's not the younger, more idealistic Josh who's saying, you know what, America is great. And most other pe people living in most other countries would be delighted to be in the United States. Now I think a lot of people feel very ashamed of being Americans. And, you know, what's the answer to that? Your activism creates a, a, an America that is easier to feel good about, yeah. to feel proud of, and to feel like for yourself personally, I was stuck in a cycle of cynicism and hopelessness. And, I, and, and my being stuck there was part of a larger aggregate that is partly responsible for why the country is stuck in a cynical, hopeless place. And if I remove myself as an individual, that aggregate gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And if it's just left with the 25% of people who really wanted to follow this demagogue because of stories inside of themselves where their love has become distorted into destructiveness and you know they're projecting all their self-hatred and shame, I can't do anything about it. But I know that there's 75% of Americans, I believe, who really want the government to work, who want to feel proud to be in the country, who want to try to solve the problems that are bearing down on us and that are eminently solvable. You know, yeah. there's no reason we can't get health care to everybody, higher education. To that everybody. is one can't of those improve. weird, bad stories that these that all of these problems are intractable. That we right. come to believe that they're just too complex, complicated, and there's too many. Uh, yeah. I mean, they are complex, but they're not they're not unsolvable. Some of them are so basic. You look at Warren and Elizabeth Warren, our senator here in Massachusetts, her anti-corruption act is so common sense. It just it just is saying. You cannot go into government as a for-profit endeavor. You're not allowed to go into government simply so you can later become a lobbyist and make a million dollars. That's not why public service exists. Right. That's not why people should be elected. And in a sense, the problems are so much easier to solve than people realize because I think we've been told, oh, it's all too complicated and complex. Tomorrow, they could have universal background checks. Tomorrow. It's that you need to get a set of political actors who are willing to make it stick. And that's the reality that people need to recognize. Like, we're so stuck in the bad news that we don't realize yeah. we're the good news. Well, that's, you know, one other thing that I think I've, I've done uh, over the last year is shut off social media. I think that yeah. a lot more of us need to do that, at least if, if not permanently, for extended periods of time to remind ourselves that there is good news in the world because it's such a feed of of shit getting yeah. poured down on us on a daily basis um it is it is i have one we've we've talked for so long steve i'm so grateful for your time i genuinely am i have sure. um one follow-up question or one final question before and then we'll we'll wrap up separately uh what's what's next you you've you're moving away from deer sugars does that just mean life gets more sane or are you now going to add something else well um What's next? I teach at the Neiman Fellowship for Journalism, which is this great. So I'm teaching again. That's I love it. Those are students who are they're not really students. They're journalists who are from half of them are U.S. born and half of them are born in other countries and, and, and do journalism there. So that's the most fascinating group of students. Huh. They're all like so such brilliant writers, such brilliant minds, so accomplished. So that's been a delight. The next book for me is a is a very strange book, but it's not unrelated to what we've talked about. It's called uh, William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. It's about my favorite novel, which is a novel called Stoner, that's about a, a man named William Stoner. And it's really a book about that's essentially saying what matters isn't the quality of somebody's life. 
how heroic or notable it was. What really matters in life is the quality of attention that's paid to a life. And I think this has everything to do with what you're talking about, about shutting off social media and to some extent how people change. I believe that the central ingredient in, in humanity, in love, is attention, the attention that you pay and what we give our attention. If 2016 taught us nothing else, it's that the vital uh, resource isn't just water or you know clean air, it's also the attention that we give to the people who we love in our lives, to the people who we're in conflict with, to the people who we, in one way or another, want to try to make an impact on. And so what Stoner demonstrates, this beautiful novel, to me, is this idea that you can have a life that, to anybody else, to the history book, seems completely like a footnote, like a life that just didn't do anything, was unimportant, never made a, a mark. And it's almost, he's almost the opposite of Trump, in huh. a sense, is a guy who simply wanted to be present in his life, wanted to teach, was awakened by literature and his love of literature, and his job and our, all of our jobs is simply to be present in our own lives, to pay attention to what's happening inside of us and around us. I always say this, the biggest impact that you're going to make is on your kids. The biggest impact you're going to make is on your partner. The biggest impact you're going to make are on the people around you who you love and for whom your attention and the quality of attention that you give is precious. It's a part of their selfhood, their being. That's what matters. All the rest of it is dick measuring, scorekeeping. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's really turning away from what's really sacred. We get a brief period of time on earth, and we want to make a deep impact on the people we love. That's how we become immortal, not by writing books, not by you know, committing a genocide or becoming a big, you know, aggregating our own power to, to influence. That's how history keeps score. But I believe the real scorekeeping, the real mark that we leave is in the love that we transmit to people around us. That's how it works. Amen. Um, what, is, <laughs> what is the best place for people? We'll put things in the show notes. Uh, sure. But what's the best place for people to get your book and to find out about you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I have a website. It's called stevealmondjoy.com. Org, I think it's called. Yes, stevealmondjoy.org. That's kind of got everything. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank oh, you for yeah. reading the book so carefully. I mean, you really, really read it. I was so impressed. I loved it. Uh, you know, yeah. Well, that's the other thing that was a little distressing about like talking to the pantsuit politics people. I thought they were like, they're political junkies. So they'll, they'll both really read the book and we'll be able to talk about the book. And it was like very apparent to me that they haven't read it. Well, maybe maybe the, the, the woman who was more lefty had read it, but I don't think, or I don't know, maybe they both read it, but we, we never got to a discussion about, you know, the particular aspects, the, the stories themselves. Yeah. I felt like it wasn't as much a dialogue where you were like, well, yeah, and I remember that Baldwin quote, and yeah. you obviously really took it in. I did. And I'm so appreciative of that because it's not an easy book to read. It's kind of tough. Well, it's, I found it to be, honestly, it's one of those books that I, I simultaneously can't book down but have to because I'll read it, and, and you, <laughs> yeah. wrote, you wrote it so beautifully, and I'm not just buttering you up. I, do, I move through it fast, but I have to regularly put it down just to be like, shit, and just to have to think. Right. And I, right. and those are my favorite books, but they are there that it, that's hard to get through in that sense. But the writing is like effortless. I just move right through it. Really. Do. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad. I mean, that was my goal, but it's weird because, you know, the dream obviously was like, I would like to be 
on Rachel Maddow's show or yeah. Chris Hayes or some or, 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 you know, one of the comedy shows that's more serious. I would love for somebody on a bigger platform to say, hey, this guy's trying to make sense of it. And he's got a useful way of thinking about it. This, yeah. this idea of storytelling. But I don't it's so as you know, from reading it, it's they're in the entertainment business. They're in the what have you done for me lately? It's really hard to get the book across to a mass audience in that way. And so it's by way of saying I'm especially grateful when people like you find it and get what I was trying to do and say, hey, this is a useful this. This will help get you some clarity about how we got here. Yeah, it's put so many good words. There's there's thoughts that I felt like I'm just lacking. I'm lacking three words in this 10 word sentence to make sense of this. And then the book did that (laughs) for me. And I think your book got so close to bedrock that I can't imagine that the larger media industry, which is so far from bedrock, would even know what to do with it if it punched him in the face. Well, it's tough. Like, you know, I teach these Neemans. Last year, there were a bunch of people from the New York Times and the Washington Post and AP and so forth. And they were, you know, what they were doing, to be honest, was having real anguished, troubled conversations about the ways in which they knew that they're, and these are some of the best journalists, right? and, And parts of the best newspapers, they were really in, in anguish about the role that they knew they had played. And so a number of them read, you know, read bad stories and they had very complicated feelings about it because on the one hand, I think they knew that a lot of what I was saying made a lot of sense. And another hand, they were like, but you know what? We, we live in this aquarium. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is, this is, this is the rules of the road. I'm not doing anything that anybody, everybody else is doing what I'm doing. This is what we call journalism. Yeah. I mean, it was very interesting. I had this moment with one of them where I said, well, you know, I tried to explain, we're having a debate kind of about how the Russian hacking stuff got distributed, you know, widely by, by our press essentially. And I said, you know, I wrote about this in the book and she looked at me and she said, yeah, I know I read your book. And it was one of those, like, I read it and I have lots of feelings that we haven't discussed about it. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, as her teacher, I had to sort of say, okay, I'm not going to get in an argument with this person. But what I'm getting at is that the people who are at these newspapers and these, these um, TV shows, they know it in a sense, they know what they are part of. And they know that some of it is really good and important. And they Mm -hmm. also know that there are times that they're making shitty, what I would even say are not anti-democratic decisions, but decisions that are damaging to the democracy. Totally, man. Um, I feel like there's a dearth of alternative news sources and I don't see the big ones self-correcting anytime soon. Yeah. And it's tough because you had something like Vox, which I think is very smart, but they're increasingly sort of, again, in an effort to juice their traffic, becoming more oriented around when here's some entertainment and here's some sponsored content and here's some pop cultural content. And I'm looking at it and going, I've been watching you guys from the beginning. I think you're really smart but I can see the editorial mission being yeah. distorted by the money. Oh man. And you want to talk about a, a conflict. My day job, Steve, is I run a creative agency for uh, companies with, with purpose, but I still participate in the advertising ecosystem. So even though right. one of my clients this year is, is um, one of the contenders, uh, the gubernatorial candidate in Rhode Island, the Democrat. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I value what he believes in. I think he's doing good work. And yet, I still participate 
in an ecosystem that I think is inherently flawed. Yeah. And you talk yeah. about like the yeah. conflict of looking at Vox and knowing exactly why those decisions are being made. And then, and then right. I internalize that and think, shit, yeah. I got to yeah. get out of well, this. You can think that, or you can think, um, all right, there's no life that's without its own kind of complicity, my, my own included, right? I, I, I rail against people consuming, you know, pundits brawling. And, you know, I wrote a whole book against football that was, you know, football so terrible. But that was partly based on my complicity, you know, the fact that I'd sponsored it for 40 years. And, and I still love watching it. And the parts of me that love watching it are not very healthy parts. They're not parts that I'm super proud of. I think it's a bad idea to say we have to be perfect. I think it's a better thing to say, or we have to be, you know, morally pure. I think it's a better idea to say, here's the position I'm in. What good can I affect? How can I enact my values? And how can I do that in a way that um, doesn't make me miserable? Doesn't, you know, you've, you've reached, the reason you do the work you do is because you find it meaningful. Yeah. And you've gotten, you're able to use creative skills and talents that are part of an ecosystem, but that are in the interests of stuff that you can believe in. You're not selling arsenic to kids, Correct. right? So, you know what I mean? You have to kind of sit there and say, the question is with the skills that I have as a thinker, a speaker, a maker of film and so forth, what can I do? What are the things that I can do that can um, at least make an effort to improve our circumstances? That's what I see. And I think you're, you're, you're best not to beat yourself up and rather than saying, what am I not doing? Saying, well, what am I doing or what could yeah. I do? Well, I, I appreciate that, Steve. And I think that there's been a lot of intentional decisions. And yet I think that there's more innovation and differences to, to come. And I think especially in the media and creative field, there have to be. That we yeah. cannot continue in this environment of advertising, um, supplementing everything. That it, there's no way that we can create authenticity online when it's always attached back to profit. I just don't see how it's right. possible. Well, it's fascinating. There's a fascinating story in the New Yorker about Mark Zuckerberg, which is basically saying it's pressing on this very point. If what you're doing is if you say what you're trying to do is connect people, but what you really mean is aggregating attention for the sponsors, there's an inherent flaw there. You cannot connect people if your central motive underneath traveling underneath all of it is to try to make money, right. is to try to be the biggest network and have the most people and mine the most data. But I feel like, you know, think about ad busters. What came out of that, you know, where did where did the 99 percent, you know, Occupy Wall Street movement came out of? People who were thinking about the world of advertising and write that magazine ad busters. To me, it was not a response to advertising culture, but uh, kind of w partly what was galvanized by people who think deeply about, as you understand, how do we compel people to think certain thoughts and make certain decisions? And, you know, I'm glad that there's somebody who's uh, a, clearly a person of good faith and conscience who's doing that work. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I'd I rather that, that you're sitting there than somebody who's just saying, well, that's a good, my client's Brown. Great. Let's maximize his right. boats. That'll get me more money. I'll rise totally. up in my business. And, you know, so, all right. What a pleasure to talk with you, Josh. Thanks so much. Ditto. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. -bye. Bye.